This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook is all about building towards a greater tomorrow. So I asked John Angelo where he sees Facebook going into the future. I, think, I see Facebook as uh, um, basically fine-tuning uh, its role in terms of bringing people together, but just finding new innovative ways with, uh, you know, like augmented reality and whatnot to actually make that happen. You know, and uh, people often fear this notion of technology breaking us apart in certain ways. But I feel Facebook uh, is in the best position to actually bring it back together and actually make us, you know, come, uh, come together a lot, you know, a lot more. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just have three quick announcements. Uh, first off, if you haven't seen already, I talked about it on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Revision Path is currently featured on iTunes this month for Black History Month. So for February, they're running this campaign that's called the Black Experience. So if you go to your podcast app or if you go to the iTunes application and go to podcast, you see that big carousel that's on the top that has the sliding images. There's one there that's called the Black Experience. And Revision Path is featured there in the perspectives and interview section with some other great podcasts. It's really great podcasts in all three sections. And we're in some really great company with shows like The Read and Combat Jack Show, etc. It's a huge, huge honor because we're the only design podcast out of all of the shows that are featured. So first of all, thanks to Apple for featuring us. And a huge thanks. And really, I don't think this could have been done without her. Huge thanks to Barry of Podcasts of Color. That is really her influence at work there. So shout out to her. Make sure you visit her site, podcastingcolor.com. If you're looking for other black podcasts, if you're looking for other podcasts with people of color, that is the place to go. Uh, secondly, don't forget to check out 28 Days of the Web. That's our sister site where we showcase a different black designer in February in conjunction with and in celebration of Black History Month. So this is our fourth year doing 28 Days of the Web. And we're coming up on recognizing over 100 people on there, which is a huge milestone. So make sure you check out the site, 28daysoftheweb.com. Or you can follow Revision Path on Instagram or on Facebook, and you'll get daily updates there. And lastly, we're putting together a special episode this month to commemorate our fourth anniversary, and you can be a part of it. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for details on that. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send email newsletters, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for absolutely free. Sign up at MailChimp.com. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and that's where Hover comes in. Choose your domain name from the hundreds of extensions out there and start building that new project that you've been waiting on. Right now, you can get a dot .design domain for only $19.99 a year. That's half off the regular price. Use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save an additional 10% off your purchase. Speaking of savings, we've got another sale coming up this week. So this weekend from Friday to Monday, that's February the 10th through the 13th, 
you can get free shipping off any orders of $30 or more in our store by using the promo code for you, F-O-R-Y-O-U. Just go to revisionpath.com forward slash store, pick out what you like from our t-shirts, from our hoodies, our mugs, our tote bags. And again, that promo code is F-O-R-Y-O-U and that's on orders of $30 or more. I'll put a link to all of this in the show notes, so check that out. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're up to a new record high of 42 patrons for a new total of $268 per month. A huge thanks again to everyone that has pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on, the conversations, the topics, or if you've gotten any kind of value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes and free Revision Path goodies. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with visual storyteller Jessica Bellamy, founder of Grids, the grassroots information design studio in Louisville, Kentucky. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Jessica Bellamy, and I make visual stories, also known as information graphics. Why the uh, focus on information graphics? Well, whenever I first decided to start using art in a, a way to, to break down complicated social justice issues. I felt like information graphics were the cleanest and clearest way to do that because you're combining visual elements, which will help break barriers such as language barriers. You get a quicker idea of what the concept of the information is about. And if there's any issues as far as like literacy with whatever type of vulnerable population you may be making your message for. I actually like that focus because I know that there are a lot of studies that come out. There's data and things that come out. And oftentimes it's, you know, left up to the interpretation of the reader to get what the stats mean or what that, you know, what all that data might mean. But if you're creating these infographics for it, it just sort of communicates in a very easy, simple way. And also for sharing, it's easy to share that graphic with people and they get it very quickly as opposed to having to explain it in another way. Absolutely. Talk about how you got your start in design. Where did you kind of get the spark to begin as a designer? When I was in college, I was kind of doing a lot of different things. I was, I ended up triple majoring and, and that was because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to use visuals in a powerful way, but also became a Pan-African studies major because the content was so enriching and I was studying communication as a minor and I was studying graphic design, I was studying drawing. And in the the end, I felt more drawn towards graphic design as a medium because I thought it was more effective and more accessible by more people. I didn't really feel like the institution of fine arts lended itself to being an open environment that everyone felt comfortable coming in and also having a dialogue around. And I also could see the potential and what graphics could do for breaking down large concepts. I think one of the first projects I took on that showed me that visual storytelling was my calling was when I wrote a paper for one of my Pan-African Studies courses on post-colonial technologies, inventions, or pre-colonial technologies and inventions from Africa. And 
I decided that instead of just writing this really long paper that no one will read or care about in the future, I made a an information graphic that originally was a poster, but then I made it interactive and I was eventually able to share it with some youth that were being mentored on my college campus just to show them, like, look at the things that people from Africa were able to accomplish before there was any influence from, you know, the Western world. In those moments, I realized that that's where my calling was pretty early on. So you made an infographic in lieu of a paper. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the paper, then made the infographic. I didn't even need to. I didn't. There was no assignment to do an extra thing. I just written the paper, and yeah, I don't know. Nice. Right. So mm-hmm. with this triple majoring again, you were kind of trying to decide what it was you went into, and design was what spoke to you the most. But you said that fine arts, you didn't feel like it was accessible to you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I actually ended up writing my summa cum laude thesis on this. Like, what did I think were the best ways that you can have conversations about race specifically using an art medium? And what I felt like I discovered in my my readings and my work were, were that when people go into gallery spaces, and they have to interact with subject matter that even if, whether or not it's conflictual or just purely cultural based, you're not only are you always essentially creating a, a way for them to almost be tourists of those experiences mm-hmm. because there's not the opportunity to actually interact and create experiences that actually build cultural competency. But people don't feel like they can talk in gallery spaces. They're usually silent spaces where maybe there's a discussion that happens once or twice around an exhibit, but those discussions sometimes can lean more towards the quality of the work rather than the content of the work. And I don't know necessarily if people even feel comfortable having really in-depth conversations. It would definitely need to be a guided conversation that it has very specific questions to really get at some of the, the good resources that you can get from being in an environment that's really trying to create a cultural shift. Whenever I was making fine art, the biggest piece I ever did was, I called it the Black Woman Project. I did 140 some odd drawings of Black women from around the world. And I did interviews with different Black women. And so it was this multimedia piece that was always evolving. Like it started out with just pieces on the wall which was the the worst iteration, if you ask me, just because people saw them as just objects. And then when I took the women and I like cut them out and made more and I made a city with like huge complexes and I made it this U-shaped gallery experience with the a television in the center that played the interviews. Where, so you had to walk in so to have this experience with the pieces. Like that was the most powerful iteration. Then I took it a step further Essentially, I was creating all this experience design. And when I got to the third iteration of it, I had created, I was using QR codes that were also on the buildings that allowed people to go to other content. And if you use the QR codes, it would also be saved in your phone in some way, like in your history. Like I was trying to explore ways that people can take the content with them to maybe have conversations in the future. But I didn't feel like that was strong enough. So to me, like when experience design is at its strongest, which definitely was what I was trying to highlight in my thesis paper as the best form 
to race, cultural competency, it's when you're using it in a teaching context. But in that teaching context, it can't just be about entertainment. Like a lot of the things that I was highlighting in that that paper was about learning landscapes, things like that. And Sean Donahue's magazine that's all about sensory, like that's purely for blind people, mm-hmm. like creating these experiences where people are meant to be absorbed into this vacuum, but it's a, kind of like a give and take. You know, you can't just exhibit and show. It has to be more than that. And the culture of the of the Institute of Fine Art in general is limiting just because it has so much class associated. It's a silent space. Yeah. Um, and people don't always take things away with them when they leave that space. And it's for entertainment for many, not for all, but for many. So, yeah, I started moving towards graphic design, specifically the information graphics, the visual storytelling. And I love working for clients because to me, I would always love to support someone else's initiative because I think there's so many great ways to use visuals to really support ideas and communicate new things, but also build credibility and authority around different nonprofits maybe people don't know about. People don't know how to utilize their services or people don't know why they should be investing their resources. So I don't know. I love what I do. <laughs> I guess that's what I'm also trying to say. No, that's that's totally clear. I can tell from that. I guess from that, did you start branching out and doing other exhibits? I mean, it sounds like the reception from this was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I showed the Black Woman Project multiple times in the future. And then there were a couple of points where I started showing some of the graphic stuff that I had done for different clients. But I don't always have time to like prepare <laughs> work like that. I hope to do another like graphic display or something like that in the future of some of the the things that I've created for clients, because I think that work is really interesting and fun. Like, for example, I recently did a project for an organization here in Kentucky called Kentucky Refugee Ministries, and they wanted me to create a information graphic booklet that was for new citizens to learn how to not only register to vote, but also how to vote. And I had to do that using very few words. And so that was probably the funnest project that I took on at the end of 2016. And now it's in 16 languages. So that's wow. pretty great. Yeah. We ended up partnering with Catholic Charities so that we could fund the translators. But it was great. It was a great project. Well, now I would imagine, especially, you know, with everything that went on in 2016 regarding campaigns and voting, something like that is a a much needed resource. I know that after the election, the outcome of the election, I w- I'll put it that way, empowered, I feel like it empowered a lot of designers to want to know, well, what can I do to help out or what can I do to get more involved? And some of the conversations that I've had with people did revolve around voting about understanding the ballot, understanding what the the process is to register in your particular state, because it's so different everywhere else. It's not a unified process. So for what you're doing with that, did it just, did it stay in Kentucky or has it branched out nationwide? It just stayed in Kentucky. Like it was a a project that we had started, probably we talked about, it It was definitely a little bit later than we expected, just because the getting it translated into different languages took longer. But I would love to do a larger project. And another thing too, I feel like it opened some doors for other organizations that also work with refugee populations, because 
we need to have more guides to, to voting and people knowing their rights. And that's like between workers' rights, what resources are accessible to you, so forth and so on. And that language barrier keeps people from having their ability to, to live as, as healthy and happy as they possibly could. Well, I mean, if you want to start getting it out, it's not too late. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's going to be midterm elections in 2018. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, always yeah. going to be the opportunity to, to reeducate people on that. Oh yeah. And this state, I mean, Kentucky is pretty conservative. So I hope that we get more, <laughs> more people voting liberal mm-hmm. in the, the next, you know, who, every election, really just every election. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard about our governor. I guess I, I shouldn't get too much into politics, but you can imagine where I stand. <laughs> okay. All right. No, that's, that's, I mean, we've, we've certainly talked about politics on the show before. I don't shy away from that. So you're based in Louisville, Kentucky. Are you originally from there? Yes. Yes. What is the design scene like? It sounds like from what the work that you're doing, it's pretty progressive. Uh, yeah, I would say that it's definitely a really great design scene that's like very supportive of creatives. There's a lot of really good people that are doing a lot of interesting things here. I think what makes what I do so interesting and also um, hard to like, it's it's sometimes it's hard to find like camaraderie just because I work in such an intersection between social change and design that I can't talk design things necessarily with social change folks. I can't really talk social change folks with every design person. It just depends on that ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. I do think things are getting better just because like you said, like with the election and I think because a lot of uh, issue-based things are becoming less taboo, that designers are 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 seeing themselves as um, like as important parts of the change that could happen. Conversations have been better than what they've been even since my short time of being a designer, you know, in life, you know, because I'm only 28 and I've only been designing since college. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen the dark side. But it's getting better. It's getting better. Where do you think that disconnect stems from? If you, well, To be honest, I think it's uh, from guilt. It's really hard to talk to white male designers about, about race in intentional ways and the design industry and how it's hard for black people to get jobs at design firms. And even if they do, maybe they're getting paid less. And even if they're not getting paid less, maybe they never get to speak to clients because they don't believe that their culture is the same as the culture of the client. And having conversations about the what is professional and respectability politics is such an area of tension that it's difficult and people take it personally. I, I do feel like in the last year, definitely just the last year, I would say year and a half, but no, I think just the last year, I've had a lot more successful and really positive conversations with folks who aren't used to having conversations like that, but know how to take their privilege with grace. Mm-hmm. And so they don't feel like it's a personal attack when you talk about inequities and disparities within an industry, because it shouldn't have to be that. I don't, I don't understand why it needs to be, but <laughs> that's yeah how I feel about it. No, I, I know what you mean about that. Uh, that problem sometimes with white male designers even talking about it. The, what I found is is sort of two things. One, it's the reticence to say anything because mm-hmm. they know that anything they say might get misconstrued mm-hmm. or 
they might say one or two small things, like make some small gestures. And then there's like a ticker tape parade for their small, tiny gesture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like you say, like there's that inequity that comes from them having the privilege to either say or not say anything. But then you've got people of color that are shouldering the burden of not just the additional work of having to, you know, do twice as much to get half as far, but also kind of being the brunt of these conversations. Absolutely. And being commodified, I couldn't believe that there was a, well, I'm not going to talk about that. That's local politics. Let me switch to a different subject. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, what should I specifically talk about that doesn't get too hard to, to hit anybody in the face or anything? Okay. I'm just going to say, yeah, I completely agree. Yes. (laughs) So where do you kind of see your work going from here? Do you think that the current climate is going to help with you creating more of this kind of stuff? I think so. And I think because I've changed my mentality about the design community, which I'm I'm definitely... uh, I hate saying it, but I, I say it to myself all the time because it makes me feel strong. Like I'm so used to being in a family, my family environment of strong women who do what they want and they are so strong and powerful in themselves that I I don't like to ask for, a, I will never ask for a seat at anybody's table. No, <laughs> like, if, like here's my table over here or maybe we can build a table together and have a meal. Uh-huh. But that's kind of been my attitude. So I feel like I've been almost... I've immersed myself in the social change world and haven't spent a whole lot of time with designers just because of the bad experiences I've had. And this year has definitely been the biggest turnaround I've ever had. And just like when I said at the AGIA diversity and inclusion phone call, it wasn't until the racial justice town hall that happened that AGIA did that I realized that there are designers that are feeling this way and thinking this way. It's not just such a frivolous medium where I'm going to just meet a bunch of white designers that are going <laughs> to say stuff like, but how can you have development without gentrification? You know, like, I don't, you know, I just don't have the, the emotional patience for such a thing. But yeah, I've been in a lot of really good conversations with folks that I feel like have also been on the outskirts of the design community that maybe don't attend the events that happened year round that aren't AGIA members, but are now also considering it and us coming together to possibly build something different and something bigger and huger. I I absolutely would love to continue to plug in and build together. This also at the end of 2016, I do these interviews every now and again, where I call nonprofits kind of like around the country, like whoever would like to do an interview just to kind of assess, you know, what are you doing? Like as far as your media and communication and like, you know, where do you feel the need is? And some of the people that I call are also designers that work in social change in the social change world. But those designers don't consider themselves to be designers. Like they feel like they're doing something completely different. Like they're like, yeah, no, we're definitely social change, but we're not part of that group, you know, that other group. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel that like, yeah, sometimes you have to keep yourself, separate just to keep yourself healthy and going on the right track because I don't always feel like the initiatives that are championed by my quote-unquote peers are the best but I don't think I should have to pay to be a part of an organization to to change that either 
So, so I feel pretty great and fueled by this loving social change community that exists in Kentucky and through the different organizations I've got to touch in the, the last couple of years, like through Policy Link, through the New Economy Coalition, through like so many different things. But yeah, the design community is finally catching up and I feel like I'm finally finding these people that are thinking the same way that I am, where design can do so much to really elevate, you know, and mobilize a lot of these initiatives that people don't know about, things that we could really do to make a difference outside of who our president is. Yeah, I definitely think things are changing and I hope this momentum keeps up. Yeah. No, I agree. I hope the the momentum keeps up as well. One thing that I know I've mentioned in previous interviews is that, you know, the it's not that the design community does not get, I guess, inspired by certain causes and things of that nature. What I found is that, particularly as it relates to politics, the causes, grossly generalizing here for people that are listening, so please don't send me any hate mail, but what I found out is, or what I discovered, I guess, through just observation is that if the political problems are happening in another country, there tends to be a lot more, I don't want to say work or output, but that kind of sounds like the best thing. There's more focus on that if it's not happening in the U.S., whereas for things that are happening here in the U.S., people are like, oh, well, I don't know if we should mention that, and I don't want to get too much into politics. And, I, you know, part of that is is fueled by just kind of how design culture is, in different pockets of the country, like where you're at in Louisville, it sounds like it's very progressive, but then you think about maybe Silicon Valley where not so much. I mean, at, at one point in time, they were still talking about breaking away from the country and, and forming their own, like, you know, state or something like that. I don't know, but it's a slow process, I think. And it definitely ebbs and flows as I guess the, the climate of the country changes. Yeah. It definitely ebbs and flows. I also feel like from my personal perspective of of the clients that I do work with, I do feel like whenever I hear other designers talk about working with nonprofit or issue-based groups, I think there's a lot of frustration because in the design world, you're used to having strict deadlines because the content is easy. You know, Mm -hmm. the content is pretty straightforward the message, the reason, the call to action, but everything needs to be crafted nuanced as far as anything that's coming out of a nonprofit because the data, how you use it, how you create your message, that all of that can be done in a thousand different ways. And I feel like when I talk to other graphic designers that work with nonprofits, which generally is not their primary like focus as far as their client base, they feel frustrated with that type of style of being patient and things taking a while. Like I can understand having healthy professional boundaries, like, you know, girl, there's only going to be two or three rounds of revisions. We can't keep pushing it, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but I do think giving the flexibility and uh, giving time to really counsel folks on like, well, what's the next step? And maybe, maybe not all designers also have that that hat either I don't know to really like give advice of like well when you're doing your revision period you know make sure that people from this population are reviewing it as well alongside and I want to hear comments from these people and so forth and so on so that it's not just one person looking at it and then it needs to change so many more times I feel like other designers that work with nonprofits 
they get so frustrated with the process because it's longer. But that's how I feel like any issue based anything happens, you know, community meetings, forums, like everything takes time. And maybe I just have developed more patience. I don't know. But I, I definitely do think like the culture of design as far as working with the nonprofit sector is is not where it needs to be yet because I don't think people see the benefit of it and why we do it and why to put energy behind it. And like you said, people love to put their focus on things that are they're so far removed from mm-hmm. that are easy. But when it comes to something that has to do with like Black Lives Matter or you want to make a conversation about families affected by incarceration, you know, like those types of issues, because they could possibly affect their general client base, you know, and how they're viewed. But we don't want to be just like, (laughs) did you know, what's his name? Talib Kweli did not want to be called a conscious rapper. You know, I'm talking about Talib Kweli. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He did not want to be called a conscious rapper. And that surprised me so much because he is like, if you listen to his music, he's absolutely your conscious rapper. But being labeled that he was so afraid that he would lose listeners. And I think that's where a lot of designers are right now. And I think that's also why there's so many white young people who don't support things like the Black Lives Matter movement. And also, of course, it's about being fed really the wrong media. But you're afraid that your beliefs are going to affect the clientele, your money. Yeah. And I can understand that. But that also means that you don't know how to really have a conversation with people that have an opposite view to you. And that is a hard conversation. And it's be having to to be in a conversation with someone who you already know is starting at a different place. Like if you have a client that comes to you that didn't like something you did for another client, number one, it shouldn't have anything to do with them. But (laughs) if you, you know, practicing that conversation is important because not only is that good for, for your growth and their growth on a personal level, but also that shows your integrity. You know what I mean? And building your integrity and your clients being aware of that as as well as them understanding your professionalism and consciousness of what's happening in your society. I think that that's a really big deal. And I hate that there's so many campaigns that are like designed for a better world, but you're not. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're not really pushing boundaries. You know, you're not doing anything revolutionary or radical. There's even a, a place here in Louisville that has a lot of creatives that go to it that has the word revolutionary on the wall. And I recently saw a quote that was like, if it's not, if it's not accessible to the poor, it's neither radical nor revolutionary. Yeah. And I, I've completely redefined how I think of that word. And so now that place kind of like, you know, I get a feeling when I go there now, I'm just like, uh, maybe I shouldn't associate with this spot because that's true. You can't just say revolutionary because you're creating new innovations and in design and you're making really nice things. What needs to elevate is the content. That's what makes your work so significant. And that's true of any field. And I don't think the the design industry should limit itself to making things look good. Because especially with information graphics, looking good is not as important as the how clear and effective the design is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like how it's all crafted and put together. And you cannot do that without having complete understanding of the content and really, really like honing in on it and building it up to where it's accessible. It's people are able to get it in an instant. So I guess that's my challenge also to the design community is step your game up, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Is, Is there a particular kind of cause or anything that you feel the most excited about at the moment? Well, I will say that Grids is going to release 
something involving families affected by incarceration this month. It's definitely been an issue that I've been wanting to do something for for a while. And there's a lot of really great organizations locally and nationally that I want to partner with. So as this work is being developed, hoping to put that out there ASAP, just because in Kentucky, we have uh, our national average for, for children that have a parent that's incarcerated is twice the national average. Mm-hmm. I'll say that again just to make it more clear. In Kentucky, our the number of children that have parents that are incarcerated is twice the national average. And so that's 13% versus the 7% that's the national average. And in Kentucky has also been the largest contributor to the crisis that is the growth of the prison system. Like for a moment there in 2010, we were growing four times faster than the national as far as like our ability and how many prisons prisoners we were taking in and how many prisons we were building. It was, it's pretty ridiculous. There's lots of different political reasons for that, which I don't necessarily want to go into just because I think making incarceration a public health issue is something that we should all be focused on because it's definitely something that affects so many of us. And it does affect also our economy. And hopefully you'll be seeing that before the end of January come out onto the web. Well, absolutely. I mean, when you have it ready, let me know. We'll certainly link to it and uh, let's make sure that other people check it out as well. Sounds great. So you, you mentioned Grids. Let's talk about that. Tell me about Grids. When did you start it? Where did you get the idea for it? Let's talk about that. Yeah, I started Grids in January 2015. So we're coming into our third year now. It's mostly just me, but I contract with other designers in Louisville. I've been working with a wonderful woman named Daphne Walker the last six months, and she's going full time this month. Yeah, I got the idea because so I'm a member of an organization called Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and that is a social change organization that was built on tax reform, but it involves so much more now. Like we do racial justice stuff, environmental justice stuff, economic justice stuff. You can't believe. A couple of years ago, before I started Grids, of course, we were specifically doing work, at least our local chapter was doing work around Smoketown, which is the oldest historically black neighborhood in Louisville. And that's where I'm from. That's my my home neighborhood. Mm -hmm. What the issue was, was that there was a lot of gentrification happening. Like uh, there was one organization that came in and that also was trying to rename the neighborhood from Smoketown to the Creative Innovation Zone, which is, you know, I don't even want to go there. But (laughs) exactly. So And there was a lot of new developments that were happening. And one development was going to be this structure. It was going to be a CSO basin, like for for water draining. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be a 15-foot-high brick building, no windows, with metal fencing and barbed wire around it. And it was going to take up several acres. It's about like two, three blocks worth of territory. And so it was going to look like a prison. You know, <laughs> right in Smoketown. Mm-hmm. And because they thought of Smoketown as an industrial zone. And here's these other folks that are just trying to build it up because it's like, let's expand the urban core. Let's, you know, make it really fancy, profit off of it somehow. And so what Kentuckians for the Commonwealth did was we decided to do a survey of the current residents to show not only are there still voices in this community, but what would they like to see? And so after doing this survey, which I believe we ended up collecting 
150 different surveys, something like that, somewhere around that number. And we created this booklet to share with people, to share with the council member for the area, to share with all these development groups. We wanted to talk to people about what we discovered, share with the newspapers, so forth and so on. And as we were putting together all this information, we also realized we also we had a lot of data. And and me being a designer, and at the time I was actually working as a as a research analyst at U of L, which is so weird to go from like being an art student to being in research in like the psychology department to then being a designer again. But I was doing that. So I was so used to using data and I knew how to manipulate, you know, things to make design. And so I said, okay, I'll go ahead and take the data. I'll make some really great stuff. We'll put it in there. They were like, okay, well, Jessica, you only have like two days to do this. I was like, no, okay, we'll do it. (laughs) Two days. (laughs) So I had made some really great stuff though. I made a one page information graphic about the demographics and I made a lot of other really nice caveats for the booklet as a whole. And it was a great engaging way for people to look at the information and see also the, the changes because in Smoketown, like the average income level is very low. But because there were just lofts that were built on the edge of Smoketown, it's technically within the neighborhood, it was raising what the median was. Like, so it was like there are people that live in the lofts that make over $100,000 a year, but most people are making 15000 to 30000 a year, you know, yeah. in the neighborhood. And it's predominantly older black folks, you know. So as far as like what our resources that we need to try to pull in need to be mostly for our elderly, you know. People were trying to say, well, there's just probably a bunch of like babies running in the streets. No, I mean, it's mostly elderly folks. We do have children, obviously, in our neighborhood. But I think the perspective of what Smoketown actually looks like was distorted for many people. And I think a lot of people were very surprised to see the results. And when we were talking about what Smoketown folks wanted to see, it was a lot of the basic need stuff. Like a lot of people wanted to have a laundromat, a local grocery store. Most people walk places, so our sidewalk conditions are terrible. What are we going to do to upgrade that? And if people love to walk places, then absolutely, we need to have these resources on the ground. A lot of folks wanted a coffee shop, like, but an affordable one that they could sit down at and spend time. Because again, we have a lot of older folks and we don't, we, we had lost our community center, which that's a whole nother political story that I won't even go into. But when we had it, like they had some elderly service stuff and some after school programming and stuff. So as far as even boosting up some of our youth programming, that was a need. Like what that service report did, which was called the Vision Smoketown Survey Report, did was allow us to really be targeted as far as what conversations we were starting to get more initiatives off the ground. And I would absolutely say the moment that really inspired me to say, yes, I need to do this every day of my life. I want to do design around data and that involves good projects, good work, was when I went to a community meeting in Smoketown and our council member for the neighborhood was there and I don't remember exactly what was being said at that moment, but there was this pastor who was in the neighborhood that had come armed with the survey report. And he was like, well, I don't think that's true of what you just said on page, blah, blah, blah. And he opens it up and he's like pointing to it. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you show him that data. You use it as your shield and your sword, you know, because <laughs> he can't say anything to you now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's right here. <laughs> say another thing, sir. Say another thing. That's how I'm about it. And that's when I knew I needed to make an organization that did this regularly because I could see the benefit of how I mobilized that information using design. It was easy for people to get 
And sure, you know, reports sometimes sit on people's shelves for a long period of time. But what I find in my work, I make more one page explainers than anything else, teaching people how to use whatever services for the nonprofit that I'm working for. And so that's amazing to me, just because I feel like I'm able to reach so many people in intentional ways and to, to hopefully give them access to something that could be of use to them. And I don't know, there's even if the, the, the project itself takes forever or maybe the pay is a little bit lower, like I, I find the wealth of what I've done to just be tremendous. And yeah, so that was the moment that inspired me. No, I that is that is amazing. <laughs> no, that, that's amazing. Every, everything that you mentioned just now, I, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole the whole story you just mentioned. I did an episode a few months back with Maya Patterson. She's a, a product designer in Chicago. And some of the same things that I mentioned to her about, well, you can go into the community and go to your neighborhood planning meetings and see what, you know, kind of needs they have and even the things that you design, even if they're small one page things, at least it's something that affects the community on a local level. All of that is stuff that you've done. It's like a complete, (laughs) which exactly, I mean, it, it sort of illustrates the point that I was making, but you know, as you can sort of see as a testament, just getting in the neighborhood and talking to people and finding out what those needs are. Sometimes those people that are in the community, they know what they need, but they don't necessarily know who to go to to make oh, it happen. And if you can be that person, then that, ende- I mean, it endears you on a community level as well. And of course, as an entrepreneur, it gives you some business, but then it, you know that you're contributing and impacting your society in a positive way, maybe in a more positive way than if you were just making, you know, random websites for people. At least you know that the yeah. work that you're doing is having a direct impact on your community. Oh, yeah, exactly that. You hit the nail on the head. Who are some of the mentors that have kind of helped you out along this time? I, I have so many mentors. I feel like I have a library. I collect them. I mean, I'm I'm so thankful. I'll say number one, starting from from college. Leslie Friesen and Steven, uh, Steve Skaggs, they were my initial ones as far as like design and development. Whenever I started reading more, which God, I'm a, I'm a huge, I love reading. <laughs> I started seeing different artists such as Sean Donahue, who I look up to his work. And I think he may still even work at Cal Arts. Um, never met him, but I'm a big admirer of the things he does. And he does a lot of experience design type work. I've collected a lot of mentors through just being an activist here in Louisville, uh, people from the Network Center for Community Change, Kentuckians from the Commonwealth, people from this organization called Books and Breakfast, Rhythm Science Sounds. Like there's so many great organizations here of people doing really great social change work that have helped me not only craft the language around, because I think that's number one, the biggest barrier for social change is vocabulary, right? And crafting language around things is the first step to trying to find that that visual literature you know like because what word hits home for most people is really important but um yeah no I've I have so many <laughs> I feel like I could name uh, design wise I look at everything what is it visually which is a graphic design organization that does a lot of really great national work and puts out really great information graphic books lots of people you, you, I would definitely say, yeah. Um, 
I, I know when we were on that diversity and inclusion call, I said, I was like, yeah, no, I'm totally like, oh, I've, I've heard stuff from you, heard stuff from Dee Nichols. Yeah. When that racial town hall happened, I was just in this phase of trying to find more black designers in general. Because mm-hmm. Daphne, who now is working with me, she was asking me about different black designers. And when I came across your it's a video, but it's a video that has like words and you're just talking over it. Oh yeah. The, where about, are the black designers? Yes. I watched that. I was like, yes, it's so good. And you were making so many <laughs> excellent recommendations to other great resources to read about, you know, that's how I found out about Sylvia Harris. That's how I found out about like, Oh, the, what's the other Maurice? Maurice. Maurice Woods. Yes. Maurice Woods. Dee Nichols is amazing. I love listening to her work. And I'm so glad I got to meet her this year. Yeah. I've, so many people that inspire me and feed my life. And um, even working with Daphne in this last six months, <laughs> this last six months has really helped elevate myself in the sense that I think a lot of times when you're working, you sometimes forget to like celebrate the good stuff that you've done. Oh, yeah. And Oh, yeah. And and I don't know if you got a Trump depression after the election, but I definitely was in a funk. I was in the biggest of funk for a while. And I feel like Daphne is so inspiring to me because she's in many ways like crafting this new voice because she's discovered like so many other black designers now, uh-huh. like through our conversations and social change work in collaboration with art. And like, I feel like anytime I hear her talk about things that she's passionate about, it lifts me up so high you know, and connecting with other people that you're like-minded with just reminds you that the ground is still at your feet. You know what I mean? That you're not alone and that there's so many places that we haven't even gone yet that we have every ability to get to. So I don't know. I feel like I have thousands of mentors and (laughs) and if I forget to name them here, I have a cold, so that might be part of it. But, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, yeah. Now after the election, I don't know if I had time to have a Trump depression. I think I probably was down maybe for a day. And then I, what happened was a lot of people kept contacting me and asking me, well, what's next? Like what should designers do and what can designers do in this kind of environment now? And I think what happened was I saw something on this uh, design forum called designer news and someone had made a post that was like, Oh, what is the, what does a Trump presidency mean for designers? And his response was like, nothing. It means oh, nothing. What? And I was like, no, it, it no. definitely means something. I mean, it might not mean anything to you directly, but you also have to keep in mind that the president has, you know, appoints their cabinet and these people that he's appointing have, they have the power to roll back a lot of progress that has been made over the past, you know, few years. It's more than just, Oh, well, it's not going to affect my copy of Photoshop. Like it's not, <laughs> it is wow. not that specific and, and granular. And I mean, no, I have been, you no. know, people have been talking to me. I had, you know, even interviewed people for the show. So I found that I guess through my conversations with people, I quickly, I don't want to say got over it. I don't want to make it seem like it's, I'm normalizing it, but if anything, it has empowered me to know that there are a lot of people out there that are willing and ready to use their talents as best they can to help serve the community, whether or not that is in service of our new president is a totally different story. I think what it did was it was like, it was everyone's wake up call that I need to be doing more than just a pretty portfolio. Yeah. I feel you. What are the next steps of growth for you with grids? 
Where do you see it going? Well, I want Grids to continue to expand. And, and there's some really interesting projects coming up that are supposed to help connect our Metro Louisville government and developers and residents and to hopefully change the way development looks in Louisville. So I'm hoping that that project <laughs> gets off the ground and takes flight in the next year. Other growth. I want to do more projects that's just from the grid's perspective, which is why this Families Affected by Incarceration project is so important to me, just because grids usually just does projects that we're commissioned to do. But I want to do more projects that we're passionate about. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know that the work that you're doing, it does center around Louisville, centers around your community. But if there was any place in the world that you wanted to to create something for or make something for, where would it be and what would you make? It would take me forever to do. But one thing that I've always been really interested in is creating more guides for people to know how to interact with the government to actually get things done in the place that they're at, like to do actual more people's guides of budgets and that have like information about how you can really get your concerns heard and met. That is so important to me, teaching people uh, about zoning and planning. Because I think urban planning is the the biggest crock, at least in America, that works so hard against people of color that <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. And I want to find really great ways to teach people about things like that, even like taxes, so that it's not boring, it's not looming, it doesn't take up too much of their time. You can get the gist quicker. Because even becoming the owner of a business, that's such a hard and long process. And I'm still learning new mechanisms that I probably should have learned from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know what I mean? Like it, it's ridiculous. And um, recently I've been meeting with a lot of black designers regularly and we have a Facebook page for our Louisville group, just talking about professional development as far as like taxes, contracts, stuff like that, like that, all that hard stuff. Like there should be really easy and clear methods to gain access to that information. And to me, there's also so many resources that are privileged to people that know somebody. And I don't think that's fair either. So I would just go from like town to town. (laughs) If I had a blank check, I'd go from town to town and build those resources. That would take me forever and a day. I would do it till I die, but I'd be training people so that they could carry on the legacy. (laughs) Keep building these resources. We're not done yet. (laughs) If I had a blank check, that's probably what I would do. No, that's, that's a great idea. I mean, especially when you talk about business, I've, I've had my studio now for a little over eight years Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, when you get started, there's, it's not even that there's not enough resources. I think what it is, is that there's so many resources. You don't know where to start. It's like an information paralysis kind of thing. And you'll, you, you see stuff on websites and you hear stuff from people. And it's like, I don't know what's right for me because Mm -hmm. there's so many different options and things out there. Like, should I register as an LLC? Should I be a corporation? Mm-hmm. You know, do I need to get a business account? Like, what are the, the basic things that I need to get started and get incorporated in my state so I oh, can yeah. do business? It's it's very, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm still, I mean, I'm eight years in. I'm still learning stuff. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> right, right? Yeah, oh. I absolutely know what you mean. 
just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you, about grids, about all the work that you're doing online? They can go to the website, which is gridsconnect.me, or they can go and like us on Facebook. But the website has even a blog section where I update based on really interesting or fun projects that that Grids undergoes. Yeah, I would say the Facebook page or the Grids website. All right. Sounds good. Well, Jessica Bellamy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all this great information, especially around information design, because I know that there's a lot of different type of design out there. We have a lot of different type of people that listen, designers, students, educators, etc. And it's really important, I think, specifically in this time, in this kind of political climate to be creating things that make information easier for everyone. Certainly, I think what we're seeing and I'm going to get political here for a minute, but I think certainly what we're seeing from our government is this almost coordinated effort to obfuscate and disenfranchise so many people in different parts of the country. And, you know, people are confused and fed up and tired, and it's it's hard for them to get the information that they need. There's all this stuff about fake news, blah, 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 blah. It's a really kind of confusing time. And so for you to be able to take this information and boil it down into simple things that people can understand is I think more than just a design service, it's a public service. And so I just thank you so much for, for sharing your work and keep it up. Please continue. And uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jessica Bellamy and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jessica and her work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work at Facebook, sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge technology, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, and even diverse hands for mockups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow their sales, recapture old business, and make money in their sleep. Did you know that you can now make Facebook ads inside of MailChimp and connect them to your MailChimp list? It's a real game changer for marketers out there. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes, where we're currently featured for this month, uh, and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really, really does help the show. It bumps us up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts, and I'll read your review right here on the show. Also, before you go, one more favor. We're putting together a special episode this month to commemorate Revision Path's fourth anniversary, and you can be a part of it. Send us a message or a voice note by February 24th, and tell us what you think about the show, what you like, what you don't like, any of our past guests, you name it. 
I'll read or play your message during the episode, which will also have a special guest. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here at Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in our own words with our own voices. So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge level start at just $1 a month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.